Welcome. Today is May 24th, 2022, and you're listening to the Caravan Podcast, a venture of the Herbert and Jane Dwight Working Group on the Middle East and the Islamic World at the Hoover Institution. The Working Group publishes research and commentary on the Middle East with questions for U.S. policy. You can find our work at www.hoover.org caravan. I'm Cole Bunzel, a fellow at the Hoover Institution and member of the Working Group, and today I'm very pleased to be joined and in studio, no less, by my colleague Joel Rayburn, who is a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and a fellow at the New America Foundation as well. Joel is a former diplomat and army officer. His recent posts include, among other things, Senior Director for Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Lebanon at the National Security Council, Deputy Assistant Secretary for Levant Affairs at the State Department, and from July 2018 to January 2021, U.S. Special Envoy for Syria. Joel, thanks very much for doing this podcast with me today. Very glad to be with you. And in person which is a, a first for this podcast. Oh, really? And hopefully okay. the first, but not the last. Um, so, Joel, I'd like to touch on a, a range of issues uh, pertaining to U.S. policy in the Middle East and your expertise, uh, including the ongoing negotiations for a revived nuclear deal with Iran, where those are going, and the Biden administration's apparent climb down from its tough rhetoric on Saudi Arabia. But I thought we'd start with a subject that is near and dear to your heart as well as your mind, and that is, of course, the, uh, the matter of Syria and what is happening there today. So you have a new essay out with, with Hoover, co- co-authored with Nawaf Obaid, uh, which is titled Trouble for Putin's Arab Client, Bashar al-Assad's Inevitable Reckoning. And in the piece you write that, and I quote here, the Western allies have a new opportunity, end quote, when it comes to to Syria policy. And the opportunity, you say, is afforded by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. So I wanted to ask, first of all, what, what is it that you're, you're proposing here? What is the opportunity and, uh, uh, for the West with regard to Syria? On, on this issue, what, what Noaf and I wanted to highlight was that there, for, there's been a slow, a slow developing uh, set of investigations and prosecutions in Europe in particular of members of the Assad regime for atrocities, for war crimes, for crimes against humanity, and and so on. And a, a lot of those cases are starting to come to fruition mm-hmm. uh, you know, more than 10 years into the conflict. So it's taken a long time to develop. But there, there, are, there were two cases in Germany that we highlighted, one that already resulted in a conviction and another one which is ongoing and was, the case is very strong against the defendant who is a, a medical doctor who, uh, in a sort of Joseph Mengele type of way, uh, assisted with the torture of prisoners in uh, an Assad detention center. And, but these are, what we wanted to highlight is that these are kind of the tip of the iceberg. And you're going to see uh, coming in Germany and France, in a place like the Netherlands, uh, na- national prosecutions, so prosecutions of, French and German nationals, or I'm sorry, uh, prosecutions of, of uh, uh, perpetrators who committed crimes against French and German nationals. I see. But you're also going to see, I think, some assertions of universal jurisdiction from, from some of the courts that assert u- universal jurisdiction on things like crimes against humanity. Mm-hmm. And these are going to, uh, these are going to really obstruct the inclination of some countries, some actors, to push for normalization of 
relations with the Assad regime, which the Russians have been trying to promote for some years now. Yeah, it's it's going to make it very difficult. There's going to it's it's going to impose a political cost on proposals like that, and it could it could create a, a material risk for businesses or countries that are thinking about normalizing not just political relations but economic relations with Damascus. Because if you start to get judgments, if you start to get criminal uh, convictions, you're likely also to get civil judgments associated with the same evidence against the Assad regime. And then you could very well have courts that would, um, that, that could rule, and certainly I think there would be lawsuits to try to make this happen, where courts might say that uh, businesses, non-Syrian businesses or governments that want that are going to do contracts or investments in Damascus, that some of their assets would be uh, vulnerable to civil judgments mm-hmm. uh, against the Assad regime. Uh, in the, in the same way, for example, that there have been cases in some courts against banks that uh, that uh, had depositors who were facilitating terrorist activities, like by Hezbollah and or Hamas and so on. So, the, I think what you, you'll see a greater chilling effect against those who would pursue normalization policies. So there's a bit of a train wreck coming between. This accountability mm-hmm. uh, vector, if you will, of prosecutions against the Assad regime and members the, associated with the Assad regime with the vector of normalization policies. They're, they're going to collide, and I don't think you're going to see an easy time for normalization. So wh- the, the larger argument that Noaf and I were making is this is something that the Western countries should embrace, especially as they're looking, as, as the United States and the European allies are looking for ways to raise costs. Uh, t- for Vlad- Vladimir Putin's uh, foreign policy, right. this this is uh, this is an area where you could do it. You could make it uh, you could make it impossible for Russia to continue to push for the normalization of Assad. You could uh, Im- impose uh, uh, greater costs for association with with Assad, and now now would be a good time to uh, to do that. So when we see uh, Bashar al-Assad, I believe he in March he visited. The UAE. He met with uh, Mohammed bin Zayed, uh, the I guess the now the, the the ruler of the United Arab Emirates. Right. And um, so, is that coming from Russia, Russian pressure, or, or is that a policy uh, independently pursued by the UAE and perhaps um, sympathized with by other uh, regional actors? Well, the the UAE's uh, <clears throat> inclination toward uh, at least a pathway to normalization with with the Assad government is not new. It's been uh, it's been something that the UAE has been talking about for at least four years, and that they activated in late 2018 when they reopened their embassy in Damascus, sort of you know against our mm-hmm. advice in the Trump administration. Their explanation of it throughout has been that uh, the Emirates see a lot of Iranian influence in Damascus, a lot of Russian influence in Damascus, but very little uh, influence on the part of the Arab states in Damascus. And so what they're proposing is that maybe it's time for the Arab countries to return to Damascus so that they can compete for influence with the Assad regime to try to crowd out Iranian influence. 
uh, I've always thought that that was a far-fetched idea. I'm skeptical, to, to say the least. And I also thought that there was an unspoken rationale for the Emirati, this Emirati policy, which is that in reality, there, the Emirates have been more concerned about the influence of Turkey and President Erdogan in Syria. And, and that they were, they were willing to entertain the idea that the Assad regime, if it were stabilized, could be something of a buffer against Turkish influence in Syria. Okay, so things get complicated fast when it comes to understanding what's going on with the UAE yes. and Syria. So we know where, where, where you and Nawaf stand when it comes to um, the potential for normalization with with Syria, I, I certainly know the way that some on the, we might call it the foreign policy left, how they feel about this, they would probably argue that uh, the Assad regime has, for all intents and purposes, won the conflict, to the extent that it controls about, what is it, two-thirds of the country, something like that? No. I mean, I mean, the people throw these figures around, yeah. but it's, uh, I think it's better to think of uh, what, what percentage of Syria's pre-war population, what portion of Syria's pre-war population lives under Bashar al-Assad's rule now. It hasn't been eliminated. Right. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it, it's it's uh, less, it's under 10 million people out of a pre-war population of 23 million. So Bashar al-Assad rules over a, a small minority of the Syria's pre-war population. Uh, I don't, it, and his, the, the military uh, victory, if you can call it that, uh, by the Assad regime and the Russians and the Iranians in Aleppo in 2016 was a Pyrrhic victory uh, because it cost them so much. There's really nothing left in the cupboard for the Assad regime in terms of military manpower. So they're they're caught in a war that they can't close, and I don't, they'll never be able to close it. So Assad Assad uh, really has no military path out of this conflict. He hasn't won anything. So it's a frozen conflict, essentially. It, it's yeah. a frozen conflict, although that, that's a little bit of a mislabel because if you if you drill down to local areas, I mean, the, the country is extremely volatile. Even, even in territories that the Assad regime supposedly reconquered, mm -hmm. the control there is very thin, tenuous, and it, it, it feels as though they're just kind of hours away from a, a reignition of the of the war in those places. Dara in the south is the is case in point, which is it's just sort of the Assad regime is kind of sitting on a volcano there, mm -hmm. as they always have been, and the situation's no better. So I tried to uh, do my best to kind of outline the uh, the perhaps progressive critique of the Trump administration's. Um, approach to the Syria problem and what I might say is your approach to the Syria problem. But what, what about the Biden administration? Does it have a kind of um, um, a, an, under, an understandable Syria policy or, has, or is it kind of, um, is it a collection of different, different things? Well, the, the, the Biden administration has the same uh, policy goals, same nominal policy goals, but they don't really have a comprehensive strategy for achieving those goals. And what they do have is activities and plans to deal with some of the symptoms of the Syrian conflict as opposed to resolving its 
causes, the drivers of, of the conflict. So I, the, the Biden administration is prioritizing humanitarian assistance, uh, but without dealing with the cause of the humanitarian crisis, which is the Assad regime's continuing war against this, you know, a lot of a big swath of the Syrian people, and dealing with counterterrorism, prosecuting a counterterrorism campaign, without addressing the political driver of the terrorism in Syria, which is the conflict between Assad and large swaths of Syrian society. So. I think it's unf we're we're in a period right now where no one really has a strategy for bringing the war to a close, including Assad himself, including the Russians, and uh, uh, that means that the risk of an escalation, the risk of an outbreak of a broader conflict, is there really every every hour of the day. Yeah, so you mentioned uh, the issue of humanitarian assistance. One thing I wanted to ask you about, and you were explaining this to me, and in, in much detail yesterday when we were talking, is this issue of the Bab al-Hawa um, hum humanitarian corridor. It's a border crossing in northern Syria uh, between Turkey and Syria, and it's maintained uh, with, UN, uh, with a UN mandate uh, with the approval of the, the UN Security Council, and that, that mandate expires, I believe, in early July. And Russia, as I was reading today, uh, one of its spokesmen uh, says that they're, they're threatening to, to veto this, uh, this mandate. Uh, then essentially you would have a suspension of, of, of UN aid over, uh, over from Turkey into Syria that, that helps what some three million people um, survive. So, so what is Russia uh, doing here? W what is the story of this humanitarian corridor? Well, what Russia has been trying to do over the past several years, and, and they've used the limited term of this mandate, the fact that the mandate comes up for debate every six months or 12 months at the most, means every six or 12 months the Russians try to water down, weaken, reduce the scope of the cross-border assistance that the UN is providing in order to, uh, in order to uh, create a deference to the sovereignty of Assad's government, and 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 to try to and to try to uh, pressure the UN to run humanitarian assistance, basically through Assad, mm -hmm. so that that humanitarian assistance will go to Damascus and be coordinated with Assad's regime to then go out to places beyond the Assad regime's control. So cross-line assistance is what they call it. And, uh, and, of course, a large chunk of that, I mean, there, there has been a lot, a sizable amount of U.N. assistance has been going through the Assad regime, and the Assad regime directs it to their loyalists, and they skim off the top of it, and right. they resell it, and it's essentially, a, a portion of it amounts to a subsidy of the Assad regime. So the Russians and Assad would like to see more and more of the U.N. assistance running essentially through Assad himself so that he can skim and use it as a subsidy. And eventually, they would like to, uh, uh, if they can, if they can do it without incurring a big political cost, to just shut down the cross-border assistance altogether, and have any assistance that the UN or the develop these the humanitarian aid community wants to do have to go through Assad uh, himself. Uh, so they've been approaching that by degrees. There used to be a lot more border crossings that the UN was authorized to work across, including from Jordan into Syria. Those, the Russians have de deleted those one by one, and we're down to just the one, Bab al-Hawa, 
so uh, the, the Russian and in, in and in the bigger context, bigger strategic context mm-hmm. for the Russians, this is leverage that they can wield uh, against the same powers that are opposing them, opposing their invasion of, of Ukraine. So they'll try to get some mileage and leverage out of it. I would be surprised if the Russians allow this to roll over with no changes. I'd be surprised if they allow it uh, to roll over without demand, uh, demanding some sort of huge price for, for letting it uh, be renewed. So if it isn't renewed, if we don't you know, uh, meet the, cons- the demands of, of what Russia, whatever they may be, for uh, continuing this mandate in July, what would the repercussions be in, in, in practice? Well, the, Does that mean people leaving, going into Turkey and to Europe? I mean, that's one of the threats. It, you could, right? yeah, you could have that. The, the, the people who are dependent on this, on this aid, yeah, you could have a disruption of deliveries, especially to some of these uh, internally displaced persons camps where the conditions are absolutely horrible. They're, they're really severe conditions. You could have people who have then have no choice but to try to go somewhere else, uh, cross the border into Turkey and, and so on. Uh, th- this is why for a long time uh, I personally thought and argued for coming up with a viable plan B. And so it, if in an instant the UN suddenly lost its mandate to do cross-border assistance, what could be put in its place? I, I thought a consortium of national aid among the, the Turks, the United States, Germany, Great Britain, and other donors should be organized and the infrastructure prepared so that this consortium could fill the gap immediately if the UN had to stop. Um, but those preparations, as far as I know, have not matured to the degree that they would need to, to to rush in and fill the gap if there's a disruption after July, after after early July. So when you see the 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 UN ambassador, the U.S.'s ambassador, to the UN talking up the importance of of this border crossing and how Russia really has to uh, to to agree to a continuance. Um, what, what's your view? Is well, I'm 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 really glad for the for the U.S. ambassador to the U.N.'s attention to the problem. That's the first thing I'd say, and I think it's it's really to Ambassador Greenfield's credit. But I I don't I would not advise that negotiating strategy with the Russians, which is in other words is to say, uh, and 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 we've been through one round of this already with the Biden administration, which is to say, ahead of the debate to say this is a vital thing. It's vital to our interests and international interests for this cross-border assistance to continue, through the UN to continue, and there's no alternative. You, all you've done there is you, you have now allowed the Russians to raise their price significantly for selling their acquiescence. You, you want to buy their acquiescence to the UN to roll over the UN mandate. Now, you, you don't do that by saying this is really important and there's no, and there's no alternative to it. It's it's really we you're basically saying you're willing to pay a lot uh, as opposed to coming up with a an alternative. Yeah, a a, yeah. a batna, a best alternative to a negotiated <laughs> agreement, you know, in negotiation doctrine. So, 
I think uh, there should have been a bat in it last year. There should have been a bat in it during the Trump administration, and there should be a bat in it now. You'd be more likely, I suspect, you'd be more likely for the Russians to let the mandate be renewed if you had a viable alternative that meant that if the Russians vetoed, they would then get pay the political price for it with Turkey, with the international community, but they wouldn't get any material change. The assistance would still go. Um, uh, and in fact, the Russians would lose their leverage for arguing for more aid to go through Damascus. So uh, I, I, if I were advising the, nego the U.S. negotiators and the European negotiators, I would advise a different negotiation approach. Speaking of negotiations, uh, I want to move on to the issue of Iran, uh, from Syria to one of Syria's enablers. Uh, as many of those listening will be well aware, the Biden administration has been adamant about returning to the JCPOA, or the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, better known as the Iran Nuclear Deal, which the Obama administration negotiated in 2015 and the Trump administration withdrew from in 2018. Reentry into the JCPOA was, for the Biden administration, a key plank of its Middle East policy, but it hasn't been so easy getting back into it. So I guess my first question for you here, before we get into the, the merits and demerits and the details, if we want to go there, of this revised or revived, potentially revived nuclear deal is, why has it been so hard for the Biden administration to get there? Why, why would Iran uh, drag its feet? if the steel is such a good deal for both parties. Well, the Biden in, administration in Yeah, right. right. Well, uh, the Biden administration has not been tightly enforcing the US sanctions against Iran's uh, oil transactions. The Iranian regime has been able to sell, you know, according to some reports, upwards of a million barrels a day in orders to China and some other places without the recipients being sanctioned without those transactions, the sanctions being enforced. And so the, there's already been a de facto lifting of the sanctions pressure. So if, if the Iranians are now generating oil revenues without a deal, then their interest in entering into a deal is much less, they're much more comfortable. They, they, they were never going to enter into a deal on U.S. terms unless they were made unless they were under a lot of pressure, made to feel really uncomfortable, which was the point of the, of the Trump administration reimposing those sanctions in, in the first place, was to get the Iranians to a different deal on U.S. terms. So I, it was a mistake, I think. It was an error by the Biden administration to... Uh, so why did our brilliant negotiators uh, you know, cease enforcing these, uh, these sanctions? I suspect that the... I, I suspect that it was meant to be a gesture of goodwill. I suspect that there was a de facto understanding that if the Iranians came back to the table, to as long as the Iranians were at the table negotiating... Um, In the other room. Uh, under, uh, well, wherever they were, wherever the table was, uh, as long as they were at the table negotiating for a, a renewal, a reentry into this deal, that the sanctions would not be enforced, at least not tightly. And so I, but the, again, as I said, to, to relieve the pressure and then expect the Iranians to do what the United States wants them to do, I think is wrongheaded. Right, yeah, so one reason would be uh, for the Iranians dragging their feet is that the pressure has already been relieved. Yeah, they're already so. getting what they need. Right. They're already getting 
selling hundreds of thousands or a million barrels of oil a day, why do they need to go back into a deal? I mean, how how much more would they get? They would get their cash unfrozen. They, I've seen some estimates it's around $90 billion, who knows for sure, that would be liquid if it were unfrozen. They get that. But in terms of the oil revenues, they're already selling upwards of a million barrels a day. So they can, it's not like they're feeling as much pain as they were during, during the latter months of the Trump administration. Their oil exports were crunched down to under 400,000 barrels a day, and at one point, under 300,000 barrels a day. They were, on, they were in a crisis. I don't think they're feeling that pressure now. So we let them out of the crisis, and we're negotiating a, a new JCPOA. It seems that the administration hasn't quite acknowledged that this is not going to be the same JCPOA that the 2015 one was, where we were supposed to have a, a quote-unquote, one-year breakout time. Uh, that is a breakout time for a new building, uh, a nuclear weapon. Um, some of the details that I've seen coming out um, about the new, the new deal, should it ever be re-entered, uh, would are, are quite generous to the Iranians, to put it uh, gently. Could you tell us a little bit about some of those? Well, I think the, the there are a couple of one of the fatal flaws, and there are at le there are at least two, and I think a third. Uh, the fatal flaws in the original JCPOA. One one of them is that it it expires. Uh, the second one is that the Iranians were allowed to continue to enrich, albeit at a lower level, uh, as opposed to having to surrender their enrichment capability and then agree not to enrich. Uh, the third one has to do with their regional activities, but I, more on that later. So if, if the administration is just going to go back into the terms of the 2015 deal, well, some of those provisions have already expired. So it's a weaker deal. For example, the UN arms embargo has already expired. Uh, and, and ballistic missile technology imports will expire in another year or so, something like that. Yeah, so it, it's, we're right up against deadlines in the original deal. And... Uh, and the Iranians still would enjoy, they, they would retain the, the ability to enrich uranium. So you're sort of back in the same problem. One thing I've seen is that the advanced centrifuges that the Iranians have been building and using uh, since, um, since the Trump administration left the deal would, would be allowed to remain in the country in, quote, storage. Um, which would seem to mean that the breakout time is vastly diminished uh, since they could simply roll the this advanced centrifuges out of storage uh, if the deal, you know, w when those provisions expire. Yeah, there's some, there's some reports that that, that that is what's on the table, is that the Iranians would just sort of hold the advanced centrifuges. I mean, they wouldn't, be, they wouldn't have to surrender them. And then, yes, if there was a future U.S. administration that wanted to leave the deal, terminate the deal, that the Iranians would then just have the ability to break the seals on the, wherever the advanced yeah. centrifuge is stored and, and fire up the, the uh, enrichment, the, you know, accelerated enrichment. So it, as the, in other words, it, it would be sort of a sort of Damocles hanging over a future U.S. president who might want might to not, exit the deal. might want to exit the deal.
Right. And so one thing, and I, I'm getting back to this issue of, of why the Iranians are, are dragging their feet, I have a hard time understanding or, or predicting, rather, um, what it is the Iranians uh, are, are angling for here. Are, do you think that there will be a JCPOA, but the Iranians are just kind of um, trying to wring every last possible concession out of us uh, along the way? Or, or um, are they just kind of, is this all kind of a, pl a play act for, you know, for, for the U.S. to uh, relieve all the pressure while they negotiate, but it's all theater? It's, listen, it's hard, it's hard to know uh, without being in those negotiations. I, my impression of the Biden administration is that they are, they are very, they remain very eager to try to get a deal of some kind and that they would be, well, they have been willing so far to make some concessions that you, you wouldn't expect. And they may, so they, they may be inclined to make some concessions that you wouldn't advise them to just in order to re-enter the deal. However, from, from the Iranian end of it, my own view has never been that the Iranians, that this, for the Iranians, this was first and foremost about the nuclear capability. This instead was about having the leverage that would enable them to continue their aggression against the region around them and to try to consolidate hegemony in the Gulf region, in the northern Middle East, against the Arab countries um, with impunity. So to the extent that the U.S. and European countries are uh, willing to expend all their leverage over the Iranian regime just for the nuclear issue, which is, I mean, it's an important issue, sure, mm -hmm. but just for the nuclear issue, but excluding the Iranians' military expeditions into the Arab world in particular, then it, it, the nuclear file becomes a bit of a red herring. Uh, and you, you can wind up with an, Iran, an Iranian regime that is allowed to sell oil in an unlimited way, allowed to buy and sell weapons in an unlimited way, develop missiles, while it's waging war against U.S. allies in the Middle East. And all they have to do to, for, for the U.S. international community to ignore all this aggression is to adhere to some watered-down nuclear agreement. This, is, this was the problem. expires. Yeah, this was the problem with the JCPOA in the first place. And I, this is why President Trump exited the deal. There, there's a lot of, I mean, there's been a lot of rhetoric that, well, President, asserting that President Trump was determined to exit the, Iran deal because it was President Obama's deal or part of President Obama's diplomatic legacy. But, I mean, my own experience inside the Trump administration was the thing that, the, the thing that really compelled President Trump to leave the, the deal what was the Iranian military uh, uh, expansion into Yemen, into the Gulf region, into the northern Middle East, and when President Trump asked for non-military options for countering this Iranian military aggression, he was told, well, you don't have any economic pressure tools because we've, we've voluntarily given those up as part of the Iran deal. And as Qasem Soleimani was waging war in, against us and our allies in several countries, 
and the Iranian regime was firing off ballistic missiles at our allies with and and with the Europeans uh, warning us not to sanction the Iranian regime, like the you know the central bank and the national oil company and so on. In response to that, it became intolerable for President Trump, and he and that's really that was the last straw, uh, after which he decided to exit the deal. That's interesting. So he he realized, and the people around him realized that this the nuclear issue can't really be separated from the regional adventurism issue. Because, right. because economic sanctions are off the table once you have the JCPOA. Yeah, if you recall that in 2017, uh, we in the Trump administration, the president started using, Secretary Tillerson started using the language that, well, the Iranians may or may not be in compliance with the letter of the JCPOA, but they're, they're in violation of the spirit of the JCPOA. <laughs> it had a spirit? <clears throat> well, I mean... <clears throat> the spirit was one of amity and, uh, and trust and... No, I think every that's... deal. I think every deal has a spirit, <laughs> and uh, you know, for the Iranians to be firing off cruise missiles and ballistic missiles at Riyadh and uh, and the UAE, and arresting American citizens, and arresting American citizens, and uh, Qasem Soleimani sort of flinging his troops against ours in Syria, and then uh, uh, you know, rocketing our diplomatic presence in Iraq and so on. That that was that came to be intolerable at the same time that we weren't sanctioning the uh, the Iranian central revenues. It just it got too much to it, it was uh, an incoherent approach. If you if you look at the you have so the options that were presented to President Trump were well you can do nothing and just absorb this punishment from the Iranian regime uh, and leave your allies to fend for themselves, or you can have a military response. Well, what about the soft power responses? What about the non-military responses in the middle of that spectrum? No, sir, you're not allowed to use those because of the JCPOA. The, the, your, your most powerful non-war tools are behind JCPOA glass. You can't touch them. Really, I mean, you know, that was, uh, so those tools were taken out of the quiver. Uh, and and it was just unsustainable. That's and that's exactly what will happen again if if the Biden administration re-enters a deal. The Iranian regime, because it's Supreme Leader Khamenei's national security policy to attack the region around him, to create a threat all the time against the region around him, the Iranian regime is going to continue to do that, and then the Biden administration and the Europeans are going to find themselves in the same boat. Then they're going to have to. Then they're they're going to. Someone's going to say, "Well, let's sanction them." Are we going to go to war with them? No, not as the first, not as the first response. Okay, well, let's sanction them, and then someone will say, "Well, we can't, because they're unsanctionable. They're on base. <laughs> they're untouchable because of the JCPOA, and it, it won't be sustainable. The JCPOA will collapse of its own weight at that point." So one of the things that we, we heard uh, Biden administration officials uh, saying at the beginning of the administration, including then Secretary, or not quite yet, Secretary of State Antony Blinken during his, uh, his Senate confirmation process, was that the JCPOA was going to be used as a, quote, platform for a longer and stronger deal that would also include these this ho the host of regional issues 
uh, regional issues has always struck me as a euphemism. I mean, we're talking about you know, killing Americans and things like this. Um, what do you make of this, this idea? One thing I've noticed about longer and stronger is you don't hear it anymore. It's gone. Um, yeah. I, uh, well, look, I, I think the Biden administration and the Europeans are in a position now where all the leverage that they hold over the Iranian regime, they will expend to get back to a mutual return to the JCPOA. And there will be no leverage left over to try to compel the Iranian regime to then agree to stop waging war or to stop prosecuting Supreme Leader Khamenei's uh, policy of attacking the rest of the region. All, so all you'll be left with at that point is more Iranian regime extortion. The, the, only, the only leverage that the United States and the Europeans will have is to say, well, how much more can we pay you to please stop attacking our regional allies and threatening the existence of our Middle Eastern allies? And I think that'll be a, an uncomfortable position to be in. How much wealthier can we make you? How much more can we give you to to try to to purchase your you know ceasefire? Well, that probably makes our allies very uncomfortable, and that uh, segues us into the next uh, topic that I want to touch on here, and that is the issue of Saudi Arabia. So the Biden administration uh, coming into office, it seemed to me like they had kind of two major planks of their, their foreign policy as relates to the Middle East. One, and these are actually set out in the Democratic Party uh, platform of 2000, one was to re-enter the nuclear deal, and, and the other was to kind of isolate and, uh, and shame Saudi Arabia, particularly uh, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, who goes by the initials MBS in policy wonk uh, circles. And the justification for, for putting distance between uh, the U.S. and the Saudis. I think part of it had to do with the Trump administration being very cozy uh, with the Saudis, but it also, of course, had to do with the fact that uh, MBS was implicated in the murder of a Turkish uh, journalist and activist, Jamal Khashoggi, uh, in, in October 2018 in Istanbul. The U.S. Um, the, the U.S. intelligence community assigned responsibility to the Saudi crown prince uh, for that that killing. And um, so the Biden administration was intent on punishing MBS. There was all this talk about, quote unquote, uh, recalibrating the relationship. Um, but recently, I, I've noticed that the Biden administration seems to be walking all, a lot of this back. And the most recent reports I've seen uh, say that President Biden is actually planning to uh, have a, a meeting with MBS. Um, so what do you make of possibly the next month? So what do you make of this kind of this walk back or this climb down? Is that the right way to, to look at it? Well, I, I, think, uh, I think what's happened is that uh, um, the Biden administration has had to confront the reality that Saudi Arabia is too big a state. It's too big a player. It's too big an ally. I mean, not in the formal sense, but it's too big a partner and too important a partner of the United States for the United States to allow to to just uh, walk away from the relationship. It's also a very institutionalized relationship. It's been many decades now. The U.S. government is and the Saudi government are institutionally uh, 
plugged in with one another in a very deep way. The Saudi, uh, the, the Saudi, uh, let's say, administrative class is very much, uh, they're American-educated. There are more than 300,000 Saudis who are who were born in the United States. They're essentially children of uh, Saudis that were in the United States as students. Uh, and the United States is the only country for which the Saudi government allows its own citizens to hold dual citizenship. And somewhere between three and 400,000 Saudis. I mean, so the, there's, there's a really deep U.S.-Saudi relationship that goes beyond a single person, or it goes beyond personality conflicts between the leaders of the day. It's an institutional relationship that comes from shared interests. Maybe to some extent, more and more, actually these days, maybe a, a little bit shared values, but certainly shared interests. And uh, it's, it's, it would be reckless for U.S. interests just to walk away from that uh, or, to, or to downgrade it. I, I think also, you know, a, a great power, a great power that needs allies, that works through allies, that has allies, I think you, you have to, you warn your enemies in public and you admonish your allies in private. Exactly. Really has to be the statesmanship principle that you follow. And I, I think in recent, in the last couple of decades, sometimes in the United States, we get that backwards. And it's to our detriment. So I think here and with the Saudi situation, we're we're coming to there's a more pragmatic uh, approach that's emerging from Washington. And that's, I mean, I think that's in my opinion and your opinion a good thing. Yeah. Um, and Biden probably will uh, meet with MBS. And, and and again, I I am not saying that the United States should have a valueless foreign policy I, I mean that's that's not who the United States is or has has ever been and if you have a valueless foreign policy then you know why be the United States you you may as well be Ceausescu's Romania so I'm not saying I'm not saying that the United States part of part of the United States promoting its interests is promoting its values uh, around the world but we also have geopolitical facts and we do have enemies and adversaries in the world, in this world, that we that we have to deal, we have to confront, and uh, we should not turn away willing allies, allies who are invested in in lining up with us against our shared adversaries. And Saudis and the and the UAE and and other of our Gulf allies, of course, their main uh, concern is. Iran and Iranian expansionism. Um, do you think that the Biden administration is coming around to to, to kind of that that view, or, or are they still intent on um, kind of erecting what I think President Obama once called a, a kind of realignment, where there would be a kind of equipoise between uh, between the Saudis and and the Iranians? It looks to me like there's still a little bit too much hangover of that very unfortunate you know, view of the Middle East by President Obama. I mean, he famously 
described to Jeffrey Goldberg that the Saudis and the Israelis just sort of needed to learn to share the region. The Saudis and the Iranians, yeah. No, no, that the Saudis and the Israelis needed to learn to share the region oh, with the Iranian me. regime. Right, right. Uh, which, you know, from the perspective of Riyadh and the Israelis, sounds uh, a bit nonsensical. Uh, and I've had, you know, I've had associates in those countries who've described that as being told that, that like a potential murder victim is being told that you have to just you have to work things out with your would-be murderer so i there's still a little too much of that i think in not just in the biden administration but in u.s foreign policy circles in congress as well and and it's just it's not it's not uh realistic in this kind of world that we live in how much of the the kind of intended rapprochement with the Saudis do you think has to do with the war in, in Ukraine and the rise and spike in oil prices? And we've seen uh, we've we've seen reports about the U.S. officials uh, calling up and trying to ask the Saudis to increase oil output, which is of course difficult for them in the first place because they have an institutional arrangement with what is called OPEC Plus, mm -hmm. um, so they can't just break that um, unless they want to. Um, alienate their allies in OPEC plus but what do you make of the the oil issue in the Ukraine angle well I yeah I think you're right is I mean certainly uh, I mean the the United States and your and the EU uh, found themselves suddenly needing uh, needing to have alternatives to Russian energy uh, and then suddenly Saudi Arabia you know, we you know its importance emerges Again, it comes to the forefront again. So I, I think I, I, my understanding of the Saudi perspective, though, is that uh, the entreaties from the United States and from Europeans to increase oil production, uh, the, the Saudis wanted to, see, uh, wanted to see that request made part of a broader energy strategy and uh, that that would take into account market factors like you know what the futures market for for oil uh which is based on to a great degree on spare capacity in the out years and the spare capacity in the out years overwhelmingly is in Saudi Arabia so if the saudis begin to use the spare capacity now what will that do to the futures market? What will that do to the 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 price of oil deliveries in in the future? It could it could create a, an inadvertent spike. So that I think that's there's some technical uh, there's some technical explanations there. I don't think th there's there's been a sort of a simplistic narrative saying well there's personality conflict between Saudi leadership and U.S. leadership. And therefore, the Saudi leadership decided to rebuff the U.S. request, sort of an act of petulance. I don't, I don't think that's how these things happen. I don't think how this, that's how this particular situation played out. I think it's much more about having a comprehensive um, approach to the energy markets. I, I, I don't think it can be reduced to a personality conflict. That's, that's an interesting... Um perspective that we don't hear very much about. Last question for you, Joel, and this just has to do with the um, kind of the nature of the U.S. 
Saudi relationship. Um, we're often told that we're at a low point in the history of this relationship. And I know you were recently in Saudi Arabia meeting mm -hmm. with some yeah. Saudi officials. So back in March, Karen, Karen Elliott House wrote this in the Wall Street Journal, quote, in the 40 years I have been visiting this country, Saudi Arabia, never has anger at the U.S. been so visceral or so widespread, end quote. Um, I'm curious to see how that uh, observation kind of um, fits in with your own recent experience. Do you think that you, you're kind of emphasizing institutional relationships that are that are deep, you know, years in the making? Um, do you think that's that's overstatement? Well, not really, because I I think uh, sure there's deep frustration uh, amongst the Saudis with the United States, uh, but then. But there's also an acknowledgement on the Saudi side about, you know, but we're stuck with each other. We're, yes, Washington's very frustrated with Saudi Arabia right now. Saudi Arabia's very frustrated with Washington right now, but we're stuck with each other. So since we're stuck with each other, why don't we start talking about how to get, how to resolve our frustrations as opposed to a divorce, so to speak. And there's, I think there's broad acknowledgement, at least this is, this is my uh, experience. There's broad there's there's broad acknowledgement amongst Saudis that the idea that the Saudis are going to trade their strategic relationship with the United States for a strategic relationship with China just is a non-starter. There is there's just no possibility, no chance of that. The institutional relationships are too strong, and and the Chinese can't do for Saudi Arabia what the United States does, has done, will do. There's just the United States is irreplaceable to the Saudis, and and my own opinion is the Saudis are irreplaceable to the United States. So forty year low point. I mean, it may be. Well, that may be. However, um, you know these things wax and wane, and as long as we are indispensable to one another, then I you know I have every hope that the ship will right itself. Well, on that cheerful. Uh, note, Joel Rayburn, thank you for this conversation, for coming on the Caravan Podcast. You can find Joel on Twitter at, at Joel underscore Rayburn. Please subscribe to the podcast and stay tuned for the next episode and discussion. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts, or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.